Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Hour 2 of Mornings with Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. A few headlines this morning as we seek to walk our faith out into the world that God so loves and do so in ways that honor Jesus. So let's apply the mind of Christ to the things that people are going to be talking about today so that we can be like honest representatives of Christ, representing Christ in the conversations of the day. Uh, that's uh, that's what we're seeking to do here each and every day, even as we encourage one another um, in our walk of faith. So in Iowa, parents um, are going to have this wide open range of options now in terms of where and by whom their children are educated. Uh, Governor Kim Reynolds signed Iowa's uh, school choice bill into law on Tuesday. Pretty Pretty seismic shift in terms of school choice legislation. It's going to allow any Iowa family to use taxpayer funds to pay for uh, private school tuition, Christian school, homeschool, all kinds of options at a cost of, it's going to, uh, I mean, you know, they say <clears throat> at a cost of $345 million annually. Um, the, you know, the word cost there is uh, interesting in terms of the article I'm reading from uh, in the Des Moines Register. So, I mean, anytime somebody refers to something as a cost, you got to ask yourself, where's the money coming from and where is it going? Well, the money is uh, going to be drawn away from the support of institutions that families do not want to use to educate their children. And the funds will then follow the student um, to the educational choice of their parents. So, um, yes, people who are mostly concerned about the continuation of public education in its current form and it's it as an institution, they don't like this. Um, <clears throat> but ask yourself, um, you know, if a child is going to be educated outside of the public school system, should public funds um, not follow that student to the school of their parents' choice? Yep, that's the conversation happening and it's being had now. Uh, on a massive scale uh, in Iowa as details related to this program um, will now become you know, public and people begin to understand it even more. President Biden uh, has said he is going to end Title 42 on May the 11th, even as articles of impeachment are being brought against his DHS secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, in relationship to what's going on at the U.S. southern border. Um, we will be having a lot of conversations about uh, the U.S. southern border and immigration and the need for immigration reform and the need for it to come quickly. May the 11th is right around the corner uh, and um, and something has to be done. Something has to be done. We have an utter failure at the U.S. southern border in terms of the care of people, in terms of the maintenance of an actual national border. Um, it's an utter failure. Uh, and so that's going to lead the news. Let's be people who know how to talk about that in a nuanced way, having compassion, deep compassion 
for people seeking a better life, but also recognizing that, you know, nations have borders um, and laws, uh, you know, if if we're going to have laws, then we ought to respect them. If we need to change the law, then let's focus on that and change the law. But um, as long as there is a particular law, then we ought to be um, in a position to enforce it in a way um, that serves the people of the land um, where the law is the rule, the rule of law. That's what we call it. Okay. Conversations are going on uh, today between the president of the United States and the new speaker of the House addressing America's self-imposed debt ceiling. You're definitely going to hear more about that. You are going to hear that Tom Brady has announced his retirement from football. But again, it's Groundhog Day. So who knows? Who knows? Um, All right. Uh, Lots of other things going on um, in the news. But uh, right now we've got Leah Salvas in the wings. We're going to talk about um, things happening in in terms of the life and death conversations that we have as a nation. Uh, Leah puts together the vitals um, email for World News Group. And so we're going to talk about some things happening in the country in relationship to abortion, abortion laws, abortion practices, reproductive rights, all of that up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So speak life. All right, Leah Salvas is joining us now. She um, serves, among other things, at World News Group as the Vitals editor. Leah, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right, read us in on um, arrest related to vandalism um, of of churches and pro life uh, pro life clinics. What what what's going on here in terms of the protection of uh, of pregnancy centers? Yeah. So ever since the leak of the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Draft in May last year, um, there have been a spate of attacks against pregnancy centers and pro-life organizations um, that ranges from vandalism and broken windows and graffiti to arson. So whole rooms in buildings being set on fire and just destroyed um, by unknown attackers. And for months, there haven't been any real developments in these cases. But earlier this month, we finally saw the first um, indictment released against two pro-abortion activists in Florida who um, targeted and graffitied three pregnancy centers in Florida. So um, yeah, I was talking to pro-life groups about this development. Are they encouraged by this? Some are encouraged. Some are like, oh, good, we're seeing some progress in these cases. Maybe there will be more arrests and we'll finally have some answers. Um, But other groups are not as encouraged because they feel like it's been so long. Um, They think that these arrests are just a result of the Department of Justice feeling pressured by pro-life groups and by um, the House of Representatives and the committees there that now the Republican-led House can can um, can investigate the FBI and the DOJ, and they're feeling that pressure. So, so there's kind of a mixed reaction to this. Um, one interesting thing is we have seen some arson against uh, 
abortion facilities in the last several months that one one case here where I live in Michigan, it was solved within a matter of days. They had an arrest within a matter of days. There was another arson in Illinois, um, Peoria, Illinois, at a Planned Parenthood that was also solved within 10 days. And they, you know, they made an arrest of the man that they uh, suspect caused the fire. So it's those quick turnarounds in those cases that give pro-life groups some pause as to whether, you know, it is the federal government really taking our cases seriously or are they prioritizing these other cases at um, abortion facilities because it's a pro-abortion stance. So one interesting thing though, is that there are other um, uh, abortion facility arson cases that are still unsolved. So it's not like there are uh, zero unsolved cases at abortion facilities um, or, you know, that they're all solved, whereas the pregnancy centers aren't solved. So it's hard to say what exactly is going on here, but um, at least this progress in the indictment against um, the two vandals in Florida, that's encouraging in some ways to pro-lifers for sure. Leah, um, let's stay on, uh, you know, kind of the the crime front and conversations related to um, the criminalization of abortion. Talk with us a little bit about the differing views in relationship to the prosecution of women um, who uh, who seek abortions, who live in states where it is not legal to do so. Yeah, so there are differing views among even people who oppose abortion on as to whether women should be prosecuted for abortion. Um, and this this really came to the forefront in the past month or so or so as um, the Alabama Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall he was quoted in a couple articles, um, one from a local. AL.com, um, an Alabama local news outlet. He was quoted saying that the state's pro-life law banning abortion does not, um, cannot be used to prosecute women, but he added that this does not provide an across the board exemption from all criminal laws for pregnant mothers, including the chemical endangerment law. So that statement made um, well, those two news organizations that reported his statement basically interpreted his wording to mean that he was planning to prosecute women for chemical abortions under the chemical endangerment law. Um, his office clarified that's not what he meant, that he was just saying that it's not like women who take other illegal drugs and harm their unborn babies cannot be prosecuted. Um, he's not planning to prosecute women for chemical abortions. but it still caused somewhat of an uproar among pro-abortion groups and even pro-life groups. Pro-abortion groups were basically saying, I told you so, like we knew that that pro-life politicians were planning to do this, that they were planning to target women and arrest them for their abortions. Um, but pro-life groups were buckling down and saying, hey, we don't actually want to prosecute women for abortions. We don't think that's the way to do it. But the twist to this story is that there are some groups um, who oppose abortion that do think women should face penalties for being participants in abortions. And there are laws, there are bills that they're, or that they're presenting in different state legislatures 
they don't actually explicitly mention mothers in these bills. It's just literally uh, rewriting homicide laws so that it will apply to the death of unborn children. So their point is, if we see abortion as murder, then the law needs to treat it as murder. And any any person who's involved in the murder, in a murder, is not, um, you know, they're, they're liable. They, they can face prosecution for that. So that's kind of their approach. So I think we'll definitely see more discussion about this moving forward as these these other groups, these kind of fringe anti-abortion groups are presenting their bills um, and yeah, pushing for what they call equal protections for the unborn. I can um, absolutely see um, conversations related to what you just what you just said on both points. First of all, that chemical endangerment is a punishable offense, um, and it refers to an act or instance of knowingly exposing a child to chemicals or controlled substances that cause harm, and that exposure can um, can happen when a child is in the mother's womb. That's actually like the language from. Uh, I mean, that's the legal definition, you know, child in the mother's womb, which maybe is surprising legal language today. Um, and then this this question about why is there an exemption from laws related to murder if abortion is murder, if that's a human being and if that's like like. Right? So I can I can see how um, this is the next layer of conversation that we're going to have um, in relationship to these things, particularly in states where um, abortion is now uh, is now criminal. Um, Leah, let's uh, let's take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, will you read us in on Minnesota's codification of abortion into state law there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds good. Great, great. We're talking with Leah Savas um, from World News Group's Vitals. You can sign up for the Vitals Roundup at wngworldnewsgroup.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, Thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right, we're talking with Leah Savas. Um, Leah, read us in on um, the new the new law active in the state of Minnesota in relationship to the codification of abortion. Yeah, so the Minnesota governor signed the Protect Reproductive Options Act into law on Tuesday. Now, this this law says that every individual in the state has a right to make their own decisions about reproductive health care, and that includes abortion. They also list things like family planning, fertility services, um, carrying a pregnancy to term, stuff like that. So they're mixing this in with a lot of other language, but really the purpose here is to protect abortion in the state, ensure that um, individuals can access abortion and 
kind of the goal is to protect the, the abortion laws against future courts in the state that might um, you know, issue pro-life rulings or might try to say that there is no right to abortion. Um, now it's interesting because this is a this is a law. This is not a constitutional amendment. Um, in the elections last November, there were four or I'm sorry, three states that got to weigh in on whether they wanted to add a right to abortion, basically, to the state constitutions. So voters weighed in on those in Vermont and um, and California and then Michigan, where I am. And all three of those passed. All three of those are now amendments to the Constitution. Abortion is in the Constitution. This Minnesota law is not a constitutional amendment. So it's actually going to be easier for future legislatures in the state to overturn it, to, you know, pass a new law. It, um, but they are talking about in the future actually doing an amendment, which would require it to go in front of voters. Um, it's just a longer process, a harder process. Um, but the Minnesota Supreme Court in 1995 actually did issue a ruling in a case that declared that the state does have a right to abortion. Now, that's very similar to Roe v. Wade in that um, the Constitution in Minnesota doesn't actually say that in its language. But this court, kind of like the Roe v. Wade court, the Supreme Court that, that declared that there is a federal right to abortion, is very similar. They declared that there's a right to abortion in the state, but a future uh, state Supreme Court could overturn that. So it's just interesting seeing how um, there's this long-term effect of Roe v. Wade, how it's influenced lower courts to, you know, issue these rulings saying that there's a right to an abortion. Um, but it's also what this what this um, governor just signed and what the legislature there passed is definitely a reaction to Dobbs and how they're seeing other states buckle down to protect unborn life. They don't want that to happen in Minnesota, apparently, which is unfortunate. All right. Now let's talk about um, when we don't have a lot of time, but but read us in again. Um, help us understand where we are in terms of um, access to abortion pills, like pharmaceutical or chemical abortion. Yeah. So, you know, when, when pro-abortion groups saw that it was likely that the um, U.S. Supreme Court would overturn Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs case, um, a lot of them were saying, you know, it's not 1972. Even if they overturn Roe v. Wade, um, we have abortion pills. That was kind of the the fallback for pro-abortion groups. And they're right. There are there are abortion pills in every state right now, even if it's not legal, because this group overseas, there are um, unregulated pharmacies that are sending abortion pills into states, even where abortion is illegal. Um, and the Biden administration has definitely approached the abortion pill as, as a solution to expanding abortion. So we're going to definitely see this fight come down on the abortion issue um, when it comes to the abortion pill there are pro-life groups that have sued to revoke the FDA's original uh, approval of the abortive drugs in 2000. So they're trying to get rid of that original approval. We could see a ruling in that case in the next several days. Um, so it's just going to be interesting to keep an eye out for how things go down on this issue. 
All right, Leah, as always, thank you so much for joining us. That's Leah Savas. You can find her at the as the Vitals editor at World News Group. We'll post all the links in the show notes today, but you can check it out directly at wng.org. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. Let's take a moment for Breakpoint with John Stone Street. More than half a million people slept outside in America last night um, because they are unhoused or experiencing homelessness. Um, If you were to type the word homeless into your search engine right now and hit the tab for news, uh, here are some of the top returns that you might get. These are the ones I got this morning. Minneapolis made little progress on homeless encampments in 2022. Why? Uh, The New York Police Department, NYPD, clears out homeless camp as local workers cheer. The Ballard Brewery is damaged by fire started by a homeless person seeking warmth. A homeless mother left a note with her dog um, for whoever found her. An animal shelter reunited them. I would add this to that headline after reading that story because there was an outpouring of compassion for the dog. Um, Do you have an animal shelter in your community? Do you support it? Do you have a homeless shelter in your community? Do you support it? We're going to talk about um, this is an ongoing conversation that we're having with John Ashman. He's the president of CityGate Network. Um, and, And so Every single time John comes on, we're going to talk about another angle related to um, the homeless crisis in America. Today, we're going to talk about homeless kids. That's up next here on Morning with Carmen. John Ashman is joining us again today. He's the president of the CityGate Network. You can find uh, CityGate at citygatenetwork.org. Um, John, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Let's um, let's start digging around today in the issue of homelessness as it relates to children in America and um, and the effects that homelessness has on kids. Well, thanks, Carmen. Good to be back with you. And uh, certainly that is a problem. I heard in your teaser where you were talking about uh, the number of kids who are out there these days. The place that you generally look to kind of find out where those numbers are, uh, are in uh, the school districts. There's uh, something that was called the McKinney Veto Homeless Assistance Act, and it actually requires every public school to count the number of students uh, on the street and shelters, living in cars, um, motels, doubled up, which means living with somebody else. And uh, they they put those numbers together. 2020's numbers, uh, they had 11.6 million uh, homeless kids in America. I mean, these are are kids who are um, really running into problems because when you're homeless as a student, uh, all all the stats talk about a higher rate of absenteeism, uh, you got uh, those kids who are higher rate of dropping out. Uh, those who do stay in, uh, there's um, 
usually a lower grade point average. And so it's just, it's a tough thing for all of them. And uh, if you go to one of our missions, uh, we have 320 of them thereabouts across North America. Uh, it, it just breaks your heart when you see these kids who are coming in for services. Uh, we we do our own point in time count. We call it our snapshot survey. And uh, one time we found the average age was nine. When you factor in all of the kids, the people in the mission, the average age was nine. And so uh, we know that they're out there and uh, they're they're dealing with all of those problems that um, that adults deal with, but they're just exacerbated with, when you're a kid because you uh, you don't really have the, the reasoning skills and you don't have the ability to cope. All right, John, um, people are trying to process that the average na- age of a person in a homeless mission in America is nine. Um that's really hard to process. Millions of kids are homeless in America. What was that number that you gave us? Um, because I, I want people to hear that number. Well, this was the National Center for Children in Poverty, and they came up with uh, 11.6 million children living in poverty in the U.S. Uh, and and then when you actually want to look at how many students are homeless, uh, the National Center for Education Statistics uh, said that in 2020 to 2021, uh, 1.1 million kids, uh, roughly 2.2% of the population. Now, that's the statistics, and I think we'll talk about statistics and point-in-time counts in, in a couple of minutes, but uh, but 1.1 million um, is daunting but even getting, grabbing a hold of these numbers and trying to get accurate numbers are different. Um, the, the last administration, when HUD, the, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, said we have 530,000 homeless people in America, uh, Betsy DeVos, who was uh, Secretary of the Department of Education back then, said, that's interesting. Why do I have 2.1 million homeless students in America? So the actual numbers are are very difficult, but we've been um, we've been trying to get our member organizations really engaged in the uh, the CTC or the child tax credit, which really helps those kids who are homeless and on the streets. Um, you know the the, the problems uh, that are causing this are you know, the same things that drive adults to be homeless, and that's. Um, uh, you know, just lack of money, lack of education. Of course, the parents uh, are maybe a loss of job, pay cuts, uh, divorce, separation, disabilities. You've got a lot of people who are addicted with mental illness. And as a result, it's the kids who suffer. And so those kids who are out there are the ones that I'm talking about that uh, that, that come and break your heart. Women with children's centers in our country are kind of uh, just coming online every few weeks. And uh, we have even some of our missions that have schools uh, to, to help with this problem so that there's watch care for, for the kids in school. Um, Milwaukee Rescue Mission, for example, has a school. Uh, and, and a lot of these missions, uh, they understand the stigma that comes with this. And so uh, I was in Oklahoma City with one of our missions recently, and the school bus came and I said to the director, uh, Aaron, uh, you know, how does this work? She says, well, this is the first pickup of the day. 
And these kids are the last ones to be dropped off because they don't want the rest of the kids in the school bus to see that these kids, 20 or 30 of them, actually live at the mission. And so they're working to try to, to make a difference. But this child tax credit is the thing that is really important to us. You know, when the, the Build Back Better plan uh, from President Biden came out, they put in there the, a child tax credit that uh, was $3,000 uh, for um, ages, kids age six to 17. And if you have kids under age six, $3,600. And uh, it was, um, it, it was an earned income, but it was only, it only um, lasted for, for uh, 2021. And so uh, it was fully refundable. Even if you earned zero income, you got it. But uh, it didn't make it into the, uh, the next round for 2022. And uh, and so right now it's uh, what we're trying to make sure is um, the we want to raise it to uh, two thousand for uh, the the six to seventeen and three thousand for uh, those under six. Um, the uh, the whole point of that is that we love to see it to be monthly payments, um, mm. and rather than uh, you know a, a year end windfall. But uh, you know the 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 headwind that is facing. <clears throat> Is that uh, some are saying? Well, this is a tax tax credit. If you didn't earn any income, you shouldn't get it. You've got welfare, you've got WIC, you've got other services and things like that. But this whole child poverty issue is is really significant. That really needs to be looked at. I'm I'm trying to frame a question that doesn't um, come out sounding like it's going to come out sounding, no matter how I frame it. Um, People in our culture seem to have more empathy and sympathy um, toward animals than we do toward little children who are suffering extreme poverty here in the United States and are homeless. And I'm wondering, John, um, that feels like a worldview issue, um, even if even if I were operating out of a worldview that said people are just well-developed animals, then shouldn't we have um, extraordinary compassion toward little children? Um, and if we see people as different than animals in that we are uniquely the image bearers of the living God, so here I'm talking about people operating out of a Judeo-Christian worldview, then shouldn't we really see little children in this level of distress um, as as in need of and worthy of our immediate care, concern, and compassion. Well, indeed, but I, I, one of the things that that we're facing is that there's just so many homeless kids out there, and and even obviously homeless adults, and we see them as uh, a mass. We don't look at them as individuals. Uh, mm-hmm. And you have to look at the individual and this, what you talk about of the lady putting the note with her one dog. You know, the focus was on one dog. I remember years ago, there was a story about a, a ship that had to be abandoned in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, the, the helicopters flew over checking on it and noticed a dog running around on the deck. And uh, and the media covered that for weeks and weeks until somebody rescued that dog. Uh, you know, with that's why uh, the individual 
uh, attention is so important. That's why some of these child poverty programs internationally don't stand on a hill and and and, and look at the the many people scattered throughout the fallow. They they uh, they focus on the face of one individual. They tell you that little girl's name. They show her batting the flies away. And that's how they get you to pay attention, one individual. And that's what people need to do. They have to pay attention to individuals, particularly those in their community, if they're going to make a difference. Otherwise, it just becomes part of the regular news that goes on every day. Yeah, there's a um, and there's a desensitizing and numbing effect to the whole thing. Um, we're going to continue our conversation with John Ashman here in just a moment. You can find John at citygatenetwork.org. You can also find information about the rescue mission closest to where you live. Um, do you know where your rescue mission is? Do you know the people who are engaged in running it? Are you actively praying um, with and for them? Do you know the particular challenges of homelessness in your own community? Have you been to the mission? Um, yeah, these are... Um, you're not going to become a part of the solution until you really understand um, the problem, the challenges being faced by individuals in your own community in relationship to this. So we're going to talk about um, how we even make an accurate count, um, how people are counted uh, in terms of homelessness and why an accurate count actually matters. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. If you're a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. We're talking with John Ashman. He heads up CityGate Network. Um, you can find him at CityGateNetwork.org. Um, John, talk with us about, um, I, I learned this from you, like the first time I ever heard you speak um, at, at the mission in Washington, D.C., and I just remember thinking to myself, I just had no idea that that's how this was counted and how quickly somebody could be judged to be not homeless if I provided one night for them in a hotel. So talk with us about how this counting works and why the, the count matters. Well, every year, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, tries to do a pit count, point-in-time count. In fact, it was just last week. Uh, they were using January 24 to 26, I think, in most places. Uh, sometimes there's a, a variance, and I think uh, some of it was even done on the 28th. Uh, but they want to find out how many people are homeless on any given night uh, in January. And uh, they they come up with with numbers that are kind of the official the used numbers, but what like I mentioned previously, other agencies find different numbers. You know, the, the Veterans Affairs you know looks at things a little bit differently. Department of Education differently. Department of Labor. Uh, everybody's pointed back to the HUD numbers. Uh, we do our own numbers and. Uh, we just find a discrepancy, but I remember seeing these numbers come down over the last decade, and uh, why they came down was that there were uh, there were just changes to the definition of homeless, and so that's done uh, trying to get a better uh, handle on it. But it's also done when it comes time in election year to show like look our policies are working. Uh, I, I remember in Utah uh, there was a huge drop uh, in in. Uh, 2009 to 2010, 
And everybody goes, wow, look at look at what they're doing. And they kind of compared it to back where they were in 2005 to 2015. And how can you have what they called a 91% reduction in homelessness? Well, it, it turns out they just stopped counting people in tra transitional housing. So if you take a, a big number of people out, uh, of course, your numbers are going to look better. But they really don't look all that good. They were down to 530,000 in, uh, in, in 20. 19's uh, pit count, but uh, or 2020, I think it was, but um, but in 2021, it was severely limited because of COVID. Uh, in California, for example, 40% uh, of the cities didn't didn't do a pit count, and these are all done with volunteers, by the way. You know, they they uh, determine um, where they think homeless people are. And so the volunteers are armed with the the sheets that they need to to do this record, and out they go to try to collect these numbers. And I've had mission directors tell me a lot of people don't want to be disturbed, so they know when the pit count is coming, and they disappear into back alleyways or uh, uh, in buildings where they know people won't look. But they ask uh, ask all these questions. Um, but the the highest number uh, is unsheltered. Uh, in fact, in, in California, of the 20 communities with the highest number of unsheltered, uh, only one completed the 2021 pit count. And so we don't really know what the numbers are, but we can have a good idea because we know what happened around COVID. In 2022, uh, last year, they did the pit count. It was kind of disjointed. Uh, you know, they uh, they looked at uh, what was going on and, and tried to kind of uh, bring it together, but they knew it was... It was disastrous, and 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 it turned out that the numbers went back up from five hundred and thirty thousand homeless people. They reported five hundred and I think it was five hundred eighty-two thousand. And uh, but the new plan that President um, President um, Biden has put out with uh, the new document called All In from the U.S. Uh, Interagency on Homelessness, which is nineteen federal agencies and. That counts uh, counts these things. Their their plan now is to say uh, we're going to reduce homelessness by twenty five percent by the year twenty twenty five. Unfortunately, we don't see any plans to do that because uh, services uh, aren't aren't really um, being considered. You know, with the the plan that's in place, which is called Housing First. You're not allowed to mandate services. But, you know, Carmen, we're seeing a little light at the end of the tunnel here on this. I don't know if it's the light at the end of the tunnel or the light of an oncoming train. But, uh, you know, Andy Bales, who's out at Union Rescue Mission in Los Angeles, where the problem is totally out of out of hand, he said, uh, uh, you, you drive around uh, and you see all the tents. And when they do this pit count, they see a tent and they just guess and say, well, there's probably one person living in there. Uh, when in fact, in many of the tents, you have three, four, five people living in there, and uh, and you really don't have the right to look inside of a tent to see what's there. But um, Andy, you know, said the other day when I was talking to him, he said uh, there's a recent study by the Rand Corporation that suggests the count could be as high up as uh, increased uh, in 2023s, uh, maybe as high as 20 percent. Uh, in in what they're looking at and trying to find, so it's it has really uh, it really has gone the other direction uh, in 2023. After all of the confusion of COVID and the miscounting or not counting in 2021 and 2022. 
Um, as you refer to tents, uh, some people are thinking about, um, you know, news we've heard recently out of Portland that they spent, you know, $2 million for homeless tents that then um, were replaced um, over and over and over again by taxpayers for, uh, you know, and, and taxpayers also then paid to have the tents removed and the areas cleaned up and the graffiti removed and all of the um, waste left behind. I do think that there's a... Um, I don't know how to describe it, John, other than to say there's like a fatigue and a hopelessness. And so when you talk about um, the challenge that we face, uh, maybe speak a word of hope to Christians and a word of encouragement that we would not um, lose heart in doing good. Well, absolutely. And, and uh, as I say, I think there's there are some elements coming, uh, even in cities that have struggled to get a handle on this. I was just talking about Los Angeles and uh, Andy Bales at Union Rescue Mission there. And um, he, he's very encouraged uh, with, with uh, what's going on there with their governor. And um, he, he says, uh, we now see with Mayor Karen Bass that, um, that she, she has said that we don't need just housing. We need uh, mental health support. We need addiction recovery services. And uh, Mayor Adams in New York, he says, we need to do something with the mentally ill on the streets. You know, we need to uh, institutionalize them, which doesn't mean prison. It could mean hospital care, which is what some of these people uh, need. So I, I think we've these are huge statements. And I think a lot of mayors in these cities are getting scared, but they have um, they have a lot of of. Um, People pushing against them. I remember when they somebody decided, well, look at all the people laying on the streets here in Skid Row in Los Angeles. We got to let, let's provide at least tents for them. And they provided the tents, and that kind of brought up the mindset of we now have a community and don't evade our community. So they tried to take all the tents back, uh, and they were sued by the ACLU. So you, know, you just kind of fight against this more and more. But uh, another point of hope uh, that I see is uh, Congressman Andy Barr from Kentucky. Uh, he's had around for a while and now has the possibility of maybe bringing it through. Uh, there's a, It's called the Housing Plus Act, which is Housing Promotes Livelihood and Ultimate Success. So that's an acronym for PLUS, Housing Plus Act. And it basically is prohibiting um, the, the HUD from... Uh, r- restricting um, the services uh, because mm. in the housing, the housing first plan, you can't mandate any services. Here's your house and there's your drug counselor, but there's no teeth in this. And basically he's saying what Karen Bass is saying. Uh, she's not necessarily saying that it has to be mandated, but she's at least pointing the finger at the need for uh, mental health support and addiction recovery. So, you know, they're, they're calling this, uh, this is not a housing first plan, but it's an all hands on deck plan. And I think if your listeners get around the missions that are, that are really working to do this, you can find the names of those missions on our website. They can really start to uh, support what's going on and be a voice in their communities. I love that. I love that. Citygatenetwork.org. I'm going to put the links, including the link to the all-in plan, in the notes for today's show, which you can get later today at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you download your podcast. John, as always, thank you so much for joining us and helping us understand. You bet. Always good to be with you, Carmen. All right, everybody. Have a great day and God bless. 
Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.